Good morning, Dort University. There we go. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. We're in a series. um, We're taking a pause from the Jesus questions, and we're in a series titled Grace and Truth, five conversations that every thoughtful Christian should have about faith, gender, sexuality, and I just want to jump right in this morning. And I think over the last couple weeks as Aaron has laid the foundation for this series and last week we came in and many more women were over here and far less men were over here. Uh, We, you know, we talked about the six relational do's and don'ts. And I think if anything, no matter where we're at in our journey for sexuality is that we can all agree that sexuality is core to our humanity. Right? Sexuality is core to who God made us to be. It matters, and we have to talk about it. We have to have the conversations that we're having over the series. And so the conversation that we're going to start this morning is on sex, gender, and the Bible. And before we get into the biblical text, I think it's important to be very, very clear on certain terms that we have when we talk about sex, gender, and the Bible. And so I want to define some terms for us this morning so that we're all on the same page when we use certain words uh, today. And so the first one, and, and they'll be on the screen for you, the first one is sex. And most of these definitions come from Preston Sprinkle's book, Grace and Truth. And so sex simply refers to one's biological sex, which is typically self-evident. More precisely, a person's sex is determined by their sexual, sexual anatomy, reproductive organs, their hormones, and chromosomes. So, in other words, sex is biological, right? The next term is gender. And This term is often confused and used in a variety of ways. And some of the ways that it is used is your own internal sense of self, right? Your your authentic self, who you are on the inside. How you express yourself, so the clothing you wear, the mannerisms you have, uh, the interests you have as well. Also, the cultural expectations for what it means to be a man or a woman— Anic gender could refer to one's biological sex. And so if we were to summarize these two terms, as I said, sex is biological, and gender oftentimes is understood as cultural or or psychological, um, and psychological, social, and cultural. But today I'm going to use the term gender not as something that is outside male and female, but I'm going to use the term gender as something that is within male and female. And I'll express kind of what that means as we go forward. The next term is transgender. This is a term to describe the many ways in which some people experience incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. Oftentimes, a transgender person feels like they are trapped in the wrong body. And an important note is just because one is transgender or identifies as transgender, that does not mean that they have had sex reassignment surgery. It does not mean that they have had hormone treatment. Only about 3% of those who identify as transgender have actually had sex reassignment surgery. 
And so the term transsexual is the one that's more often referred to those who have had sex reassignment surgery or are strongly considering to do so. And then our last term is gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the uneasy or dissatisfied feeling or experiences that comes with being transgender, right? It's the uneasiness of not having your gender line up with your biological sex. And again, not all people who are transgender struggle with gender dysphoria, right? Some who identify as transgender don't struggle at all. They're completely content with who they are, right? And so this is talking about the struggle, the tension, the dissatisfaction when one's biological sex does not necessarily line up with their gender or how they act. And you may be wondering, why are we having this conversation? This is very few people in the world struggle with this, or, or this is Dort University, right? Why are, this is a Christian college. Why are we struggling with it? Why are we talking about it? But I want to give us a few stats this morning. Um, most of these, are, some of these are taken from psychology today, but in adult males, one in every 10,000 to 13,000 adult males struggle with gender dysphoria, and one in every 20,000 to 34,000 adult females struggle with gender dysphoria. And again, that is, that's less than 1%, but when we take those numbers, it comes out to almost a million people. And then couple that with teenagers today. 3% of teenagers either identify themselves as transgender or gender non-conforming. That's a 329% increase from the previous generation. And so why are we having this conversation? Because it is becoming more and more relevant. It is becoming more and more a, a conversation that we must have in the church and that Christians must be on the forefront with. Time Magazine in June 2014, you can see the issue on the screen, um, had an issue that was titled The Transgender Tipping Point, America's Next Civil Frontier. Vogue, the magazine, has had their first transgender model. Amazon in 2014 released a TV series called Transparent, which was now getting the issue of gender identity on screen. And I believe it's actually been nominated for an Emmy as well. The ESPYs, which is the awards for ESPN several years ago, you're probably familiar with this, awarded the Arthur Ashe of Courage Award to Caitlyn Jenner. And now when you log into social media, you can go onto your Facebook. If you guys have Facebook anymore, I know it's, you know, it's for the old people. Um, but Facebook, you can have 71 different genders to choose from. And not only that, Tumblr has a gender-fluid support page with hundreds of different genders. They'll scroll. There's just three pictures on the screen. And basically anyone could submit the gender that they feel like they are. One of them was like, Ka-L gender, which was your gender like relates to outer space. And so then I went to like Superman, right? Ka-L and the super, anyway. So you can, you can, there are hundreds of genders that you can choose from. And so sex, gender, and the Bible must be talked about. 
Preston Sprinkle says, the church must be culturally aware if we are to be gracefully effective. We must be culturally aware if we are to be gracefully effective. And it is important to note that this morning, the conversation is not primarily about issues or policies or politics. It's not about being on the right or the left, liberal or conservative, traditional or progressive. This conversation is about people. This conversation is about us as the church asking ourselves the question, what will we do when a transgender person comes into our life or when we befriend a transgender person? This, 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 this conversation is about people because there's people in this room that struggle with gender dysphoria. And so the conversation is about people, not issues, not policies, and not politics. And I think in order to give us an understanding of our cultural moment, our cultural landscape, we need to kind of outline the contours of the argument. And I want to give us kind of, again, for lack of a better term, a really far left argument and a really far right argument. So on the left, the gender activists, they are going to argue that gender needs to be deconstructed because it is an impressive, it is an oppressive force. Here's what one radical feminist says. She longs for the day when gender distinctive effectively disappears. When no longer does anyone ask, is someone a boy or girl when gendering an infant? When the info is as relevant as the color of the child's eyes. Only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. When that happens, there will be no need for gender at all. Just let that sink in for a moment. Right? Gender is oppressive. It's something that the powers that be place on us to keep us confined. And they're saying we need to break from that. It must be deconstructed. On the other side, on the far right wing, often associated with conservatives or the far right wing of the church, is that gender is not to be deconstructed, but it is part of the creator's design. Right? They, they follow along the lines of, we can't even have a conversation about this. It's clear. The Bible says it, the end, hands in the pockets, we're done. They're not willing to, to live in the tension of how we're supposed to respond and what we're supposed to do. The role of gender is according to design. And so a man, right, their innate sense of gender is leadership. And for a woman, their innate sense of gender is submission to male leadership. Right, the idea in this camp is that women should not exert direct influence over man, but they should only direct indirect influence. There's an illustration that, that man is like the drill sergeant, but then women, a woman is like the city planner. She's the one in the background planning the way that the roads go and the streets work that a man drives on, right? So she does not have direct influence over a man, but she has indirect influence over a man. Right? This, is, this is that far right side, that any cultural depiction of blurred gender roles is wrong, and we can't even have the conversation. But here's what I want to tell you. Most transgender people are not activists, and most people in the church are not staunch fundamentalists. And that's what we see oftentimes in the media. 
But most people are somewhere in the middle wrestling and living in this tension. And so I want to challenge us this morning to live in the tension, to have a conversation, to be willing to talk about what this is and what our response is. Because I do believe there's a third way. And I think Jesus shows us what that third way is. And so what does Jesus say about gender? What does Jesus say about gender? If you have your Bibles, you can open up. If not, it'll be on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. And in this text, Jesus, there's a transition in the book of Matthew that he's now heading towards Jerusalem. And so it's getting to the point where Pharisees are beginning to try to trip him up, to try to trap him. He is, he's on the way to his death. Verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So then the Pharisees respond and they ask another question. They say, well, didn't Moses say anyone could get a divorce? And Jesus responds and said, yes, but that's because you're sinful and your hardness of heart. They were, again, just trying to trap Jesus. But then Jesus goes off onto an interesting tangent. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven." Let one who is able to receive this, receive it. So the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, and they go to him with a question. Is it lawful to divorce your wife? And this isn't a question of a humble question asker wanting the wisdom of Jesus. This is a question that the Pharisees are essentially saying, hey, do you believe the right thing or not? And if Jesus doesn't believe the right thing, if he doesn't have the right answers, then let me shame you. You know, it's kind of like when I talk to people from Wisconsin and I ask them, hey, so are you a Packers fan? The right answer is no. Right? It, yeah, I know. Hey, can I get an amen? No. It's, it, it's Aaron Rodgers is the worst. And so when they say yes, like Derek Butine, I didn't know I was going to say his name, right? I shame him for it because it's wrong. Right? In some ways, the church is really good at this too. Right? It's, it's, we talk about sexuality, we talk about politics, and um, if you don't have the right answer, or if you're not on the conservative end of the spectrum, oh, let me shame you for what you believe. That's what the Pharisees are trying to do. And in the Jewish school of thought, there were two views on divorce. The Shammai school and the Hillel school. It was the conservative and the liberal. It was you can divorce for any reason, or essentially you can divorce for no reason. And so the question that the Pharisees are actually proposing to Jesus, they are trying to figure out whether or not Jesus has a conservative or a liberal sexual ethic. That's what they're trying to do. Is he going to be on the right or the left? 
Is he going to line up with us or be wrong? But here's the beauty. Is Jesus doesn't identify as a conservative or a liberal. Right? We, we fall into the same category. We are so culturally conditioned to think in our right and left categories. And too often sexuality becomes about politics rather than people. Right? Jesus doesn't identify as right or left. He goes back to a weightier identity. He goes back to the identity of God's word. He goes back to the identity of creation. And so what Jesus does to answer this question he first and foremost affirms the male and female gender identity and distinction. I'm going to draw two things from this text. And the first one is Jesus affirms the male and female gender identity and distinction. Right? He goes back to creation. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is the creator's design. When we search scripture from beginning to end, there are only two biological sexes, male and female. So why? Why, why did God create male and female? And I actually think several, there's probably a whole lot of answers to this. I want to give us a quick three this morning that I think are actually rooted in this creation account. Here, here's one reason why God created male and female. To be a signpost of heaven and earth coming together. Think about it. So the scripture story begins with heaven and earth coming together. We have messed it up as humans. And in the revelation, it ends. The new Jerusalem is coming again to earth. Heaven and earth belong together. The creation account is filled with these different complementaries. Heaven and earth, light and darkness, land and water, plants and animals. And then the crown, the climax of all creation, is male and female. Here's how N.T. Wright puts it. He says this. Right there at the, at the start of the whole Bible as we have it, in the start of the book of Genesis, we have this rich symbolic account of God's good creation in which, at its very heart, the coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation of heaven and earth belonging together. And so why male and female? It is a picture of the greater reality that is to come. It is the reality that the kingdom of God right now is here, but not fully yet. And we get to look forward to the moment where God's kingdom officially comes and there is no more pain and there are no more tears and there is no more struggle, but there is the kingdom of God in its fullness. And so male and female are signposts of the reality in the present and towards the future reality when it's in its fullness. Here's the second one. Male and female. Why? Because they release and restrain the weaknesses and strengths of other genders. Both genders have weaknesses. I would probably propose that males have a few more weaknesses than females. I can say that because I'm a male. Um, ask my wife. I know. She loves me. She wouldn't. Anyway. Um, but think about it. In creation, again, God said it was not good for man to be alone. 
And it's only after women were created that the creation was not just good, but it was very good. It was when male and then female was created that creation was complete. That God called it very good. Maybe a more practical way to understand this is just my, my wife makes me a better human. If I didn't have my wife, right, I, I usually struggle with some type of pride, some tri- type of arrogance. And there's something that when my wife is in the room or when I'm in a conversation with her, the nature of the room changes. The pride and arrogance that oftentimes comes out of me is restrained. And then the servant heartedness of who I really am is released into the world. And that's what male and female do for one another. They release the worst, they restrain the worst parts of ourselves and release the best parts of ourselves so that we can display the goodness of God to all people everywhere. And the last one, very quickly, why male and female? It's a remi- this kind of goes back to the first one, but I just want to emphasize this again. It's a reminder of the reunion that we are headed to. Right? God's word says that he has set eternity in the hearts of man. Each one of us has a longing that can only be filled by Jesus. And we try to fill it with these other things. And so the longing for me, for my wife, for the female, and a male's longing for a male and, and, and their spouse, that's actually a picture of the longing that we have for Jesus. It is a picture, it is a living illustration of our deep need and longing for the Creator, for Jesus Himself. And so God created male and female to display the goodness of God. Take a breath. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Here's an important, I want to pause for a moment. Because while, right, Jesus affirms male and female identities. Male and female are not fluid. That's the confines in which who we are and what we are. But masculinity and femininity are fluid. Right? Meaning the way in which a person lives out their biological sex looks different. And too often we in the church and we as Christians have confused our cultural expectations of womanhood and manhood with biblical expectations of womanhood and manhood. For instance, there's this weird thing on this campus that anytime there's a male event, bacon is present. Let me just tell you, females, women like bacon too. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. Or growing up at summer camp, I remember the, the females would be on one side and the males would be on the other. And the chant that the males would do was football, rugby, power, tools, football. And like we would chant that over and over again. As if being a man means you have to like football, you have to like rugby, and you like power tools. Here's the reality. I hate power tools. I don't, I'm terrible with them. I don't use them. I don't like cars at all either. Here's the other thing. I own more shoes than my wife. Yeah, yeah. I ask my wife way more how I look in the morning than, and then she ever asks me how I look. And, and not only that, I have this really weird particular bedtime routine. It takes like 13 to 28 minutes. And, and at the end of it, and my wife is just like, brush the teeth, wash the face in bed. And I'm like, man, she gets, I wonder how much more sleep she gets as a result of my long bedtime routine. But every night before I go to bed, I put lotion on my elbows. 
I hate ashy elbows. I do. It's weird. I know. Here's the deal. It's starting to be winter. Your skin's probably dry. Check your elbows today. Please put lotion on them. Please. Please do. Right? We have these cultural ideas of what it means to be masculine and what it means to be feminine. Here's what Preston Sprinkle, I keep wanting to say wrinkle when I say that. Sprinkle is way better than wrinkle. That's for sure. Here's what he says in his book, Grace and Truth 2.0. He says, there is nothing in the Bible that says men must live like the good old boys of the 21st century America. The Bible never says that men must be athletic, unemotional, and aggressive. Think about it. Were Bezalel and Aholiab being manly men when God gifted them to make artistic designs and so finely worked garments? Or were they only masculine when they were cutting stones, carving wood? Was David being a man when he was killing Goliath or when he was playing his harp and writing poetry? Was Deborah being feminine when she led Israel to war? Was Jael living out her womanhood when she drove the tent peg through Sisera's head? And what about that Proverbs 31 woman? Is she being feminine when she considers a field and buys it or only when she provides food for her family? Was Jesus being masculine when he cried over Jerusalem and said he wanted to gather his people as a mother hen gathers her chicks? Or was he only being manly when he turned over the tables in the temple? There are not many different genders, but there are many different ways of being male and female. Cultural assumptions are not biblical interpretations. Cultural assumptions are not biblical interpretations. Here's the second thing to draw out in this text, right? First, Jesus has affirmed male and female. But in the latter part of the text, Jesus also has some understanding of variance in male and female. In verses 10 to 12, he begins to talk about eunuchs. Eunuchs usually were, some, were, were castrated males, and Jesus recognizes three types of eunuchs. Ones that were eunuchs by defect, meaning they, by birth, right? They had some genetic defect. Others that were um, basically made eunuchs by either somebody else. It was a punishment of some kind, or oftentimes it was as a result of a job. If a man had a job that was in close quarters with the queen or worked close with a harem, oftentimes he would be castrated so there would be no temptation. And the third is a eunuch by choice. They have chosen to be celibate. And eunuchs in this society were not valued. They were not highly regarded. They were not allowed to be priests, and they were not allowed to worship at the temple. They could not take part in the fullness of what God had for his people. Here's the incredible thing. Jesus right? Is, yes, he's talking about eunuchs, but he here is saying, you know what? I'm recognizing those who are othered, those who are marginalized, those who are outcasted. And Jesus does not tear down or degrade eunuchs. He speaks positively of them. Just as he speaks positively to anyone in this room who is struggling with any part of their sexuality, whether it is pornography and masturbation, whether it is you identify as transgender, whether you're struggling with gender dysphoria and you're not sure what to do it, Jesus does not cast you out. Jesus does not kick you to the curb. Jesus does not say, well, you better believe what's right. The end, end of story. He says, I love you and I welcome you. 
That's what Jesus does. That's who he is. His arms are open. To go even further, here's what Isaiah chapter 56 says. Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Better than those of sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So not only does Jesus simply say, okay, yeah, I value eunuchs, I do this. No, you know what he says to those who are struggling with their sexuality? You know those who he says, what he says to those who are othered by society? He says, guess what? I'm going to give you a name that is better than my sons and daughters. I'm going to build you a monument that is everlasting, that is sure, that will last forever. That is who Jesus is. He includes, he does not exclude. So Jesus, in this text, does not deconstruct gender, but he actually affirms male and female gender identities while at the same time upholding and valuing the others who have been outcasted by society or have been marginalized by the church. So I pose this question to you as we close. What kind of person will you be when God places a transgender person in your life? What kind of person will you be when God places a transgender person in your life? John Mark Comer has a quote. He's a pastor in Portland. He says, long before our sexuality is about morality, it is about anthropology. And long before it's about anthropology, it is about theology. So the idea is what Jesus does in this text. What kind of person will you be? Well, Jesus roots it back to his theology, to God's word. That's the truth aspect. Right? And then he goes on to humanity, to anthropology. He loves people. It's the grace aspect. He values people. And then morality is way down the list. Too often we make sexuality about morality first, but it's about grace and truth, conviction and compassion. They can be held at the same time, and we as Christians in the church must stop making it about morality. Morality is not the gospel. Promiscuous love is. Morality, right and wrong, is not the gospel. It is antithetical to the gospel. But promiscuous love, un, un, unbridled grace, is the gospel. And so what kind of person will you be? We must be people that love. We must be people that accept, while at the same time affirming what God says, grace and truth. Right? We don't have to transform people. Jesus does. Our job is not to fix people. We are to love people. And when we love people and accept them, it brings them in close proximity to Jesus. And when people are in close proximity to Jesus, they are changed and transformed. And that's what happens. That's what happens. The question also becomes, maybe a Unbeliever is struggling with this. I know it's late. We got three minutes and then we're done. We'll be out of here by 11.50, I promise. If you have to go, you can sneak out the back. What do you, what do, you do to somebody who's a believer who's struggling with this? I think, I think then the question becomes about lordship. Whose authority are you willing to submit to? And this is kind of a harder conversation. 
Because all gender identity often is defined as the internal self, the authentic self. It is about us. But maybe a better question to ask is what claims does Jesus have on my body? Well, the answer is all of them. Our bodies are the Lord's. We were bought with a price. We were bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. And Jesus deserves everything that we are. And so are we going to bow to his word? Or are we going to bow to our feelings and opinions? Because remember, the purpose of male and female, signposts of the greater reality that's to come, to release and to restrain the best and worst parts of ourselves, the reminder of the union that is coming. And so this is not simply an issue of gender identity. It's an issue of spiritual identity. Because we display the goodness of God by the way we reveal our gender to the world. So here's what I want to leave you with. If you're in this place this morning and you're struggling with gender dysphoria, you're not sure what to do. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, if you're struggling with anything in regards to sexuality, I'm sorry if the church has marginalized you. I'm sorry if we as Dort University have cast you out and not heard you. But I want you to know that Jesus' arms are wide open. And he's given you a name better than sons and daughters. And he's, he's making you a monument that is everlasting. And he's saying, come on, I want to change you. I want to transform you. I love you who you are, and I accept you. And as a result of my acceptance, you will be changed. And maybe you're not struggling. Maybe you're not struggling with this at all. So what kind of person are you called to be? Can I just tell you, love promiscuously. Uphold grace and uphold truth. Conviction and compassion. And let's be missional rather than reactional. So, Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for Dort University. God, may we be Christians um, who love promiscuously while upholding the truth of your word. You are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for sitting.